Good morning. Well, thank you, John, for that kind introduction. And it's been a, a real privilege to be here and a, a member of this church uh, for the last, I think, I believe it's been seven or eight months or so. And especially for those of you who have students in our high school and junior high ministry, the way uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know them and um, just having fun with them, but also teaching them God's word and pointing them to Christ. And I, I know I can speak for John Stead and I and all of the staff when I say that we're thankful that you would entrust your, your precious students um, to our care and, and we want to be faithful there. Pastor John said that I could choose any passage that I wanted uh, to preach on this morning. And as I considered what to teach, there's one passage that has become one of my favorites and has encouraged me maybe more than any other, especially in the Gospels, in my walk with the Lord. That's Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. It's the story, I'm sure you're familiar with it, of Jairus' daughter and the hemorrhaging or the bleeding woman. The story about Jesus being strong and kind. And it's one of my favorite passages because I think it so clearly demonstrates who Jesus Christ is. That is the most important question that we can answer for ourselves. Who is Jesus Christ? If there's any subject that we should be experts in, it's the person of Jesus Christ. For every single one of us, whether we've been walking with the Lord for 50 years or we haven't started walking with the Lord yet. The most important question we can ask ourselves and answer is who is Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we behold the glory of God, specifically in the face of Jesus Christ, when we see the glory of God in the person of Christ, we are transformed from one level of glory to the next. God changes people, not like false religions, through only discipline and asceticism and rules. Those are included. We obey God out of gratitude. But God primarily changes us as Christians through seeing the person of Christ in the word. That's why Sunday morning is so important because every Sunday we come and we listen to see Christ with the eye of faith. So as you turn your Bibles there, I'll give you a little bit of context of the book of Mark. The book of Mark uh, fits well with that theme. The entire book of Mark the first verse is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus. It's not primarily advice, although there is advice in there. Instead, it is the heralding of good news. It's like a, somebody running from a battle that's been sent on a horse to deliver the good news to a city, to a people that the king has won. Victory. Good news. And this whole book is orchestrated and put together. Mark 1 through 8 is driving you with this fast language immediately, immediately, immediately. Try, and, and all this fast-paced events happening one after another. All these displays of the glory of Christ to get you to make a confession with Peter in chapter 8 that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the rest of the book, verses, uh, chapters 9 through 16, is, is driving you to make another confession. The confession of the centurion when he says, after the crucifixion of Jesus, 
Truly, this was the Son of God. So the purpose of this book is that you would receive and believe the good news about Jesus. And already in this book, in chapters 1 through 5, there are all kinds of things have happened. Um, we've already, Jesus has been baptized. He started his public ministry. He's healing the multitudes. The paralytic has already been let down in Capernaum into the uh, house, and Jesus heals him and forgives his sins. He goes across immediately before this to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, Gadara it's called, and he casts the pigs, shows his power by casting the legion of demons into the pigs. And then he comes back across the Sea of Galilee. And that brings us to our passage this morning. So we're going to look at this in three different scenes, three different scenes, and I want to prove to you from Scripture, from this passage, that Jesus is able and willing to save all those who come to him with no exceptions. Jesus is able and willing to save all those who come to him, no exceptions. And Mark is aiming to illustrate that here. We're going to see that in three different scenes. So first, let's look at a desperate request. A desperate request, verse 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. In this first scene, we see Jesus has crossed from the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. He's back on the Jewish side, probably in the city of Capernaum, the town of Capernaum, where he did much of his ministry. But there's so many crowds that he's on the seashore. Earlier in Mark, Jesus had to go out into a boat because he was going to be pressed against. There's so many people there, so many people excited to hear about Jesus and what he's done and hearing rumors about his miracles that they're pressing in on him and the disciples are worried that he's going to be killed. So they go out on a boat. And similar here, there's so many people that Jesus gathers beside the sea. There's a great crowd here. This is not just the disciples. This is massive crowds. All the way later in the book of Mark, we see that there's people coming from Syria all the way down in the south and the Negev. I mean, there's hundreds of people and other times in the gospels, even thousands. But one person stands out in this crowd. A man named Jairus, a ruler of a synagogue. And it's actually interesting that this man is named in this book. In the book of Mark, if you, if you just glance through it later today, you won't really see too many proper names. Usually you'll see a man, a woman, a child, even in this passage. But here Jairus is named. Some commentators think that that's because John Mark, the author, actually thought some of the recipients of this gospel would have known Jairus. He's popular, he's famous, he's high on society's ladder. But for whatever reason, it's significant that Jairus is named. He's a man of prominence. Later, we'll see he has servants that come to him and deliver news. 
And he's a synagogue ruler. What's a synagogue ruler? It's, it's like a deacon today. You know, set up the chairs, put out the pour-over coffee. It's not like the elders. It's, it's a deacon. And so Jairus would have been involved in the day-to-day operations of what's going on in the synagogue. He would have been there all the time, part of the religious establishment. And if it was in Capernaum, he probably had heard some about Jesus. But Jairus is not introduced here in pomp and circumstance. He, we're not introduced to him holding court with other people that were, you know, of, of, of like status. We see Jairus at his worst. Fallen at Jesus' feet, imploring him earnestly. My little daughter is at the point of death. I'm sure those of you who are parents can understand this even even more than I can, but we all know the pain and suffering of losing a child. We've seen it in other people's lives. The way the world works, parents are not supposed to bury their children. It's supposed to be the other way around. That's one of the horrors of war. But what we see here is that Jairus is at his wit's end. Literally, it means that it, she's in her final stage. She's about to die. But he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about these other miracles. He's heard there's a teacher in town who can do amazing things. He's heard that he's gracious and merciful and that he's able to do miraculous things. And so in faith, he throws himself down at the feet of Jesus and says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Confident that Jesus is able to do it. And he's asking him to come. And I love verse 24 in the beginning. It says, and he went with him. Five words, but they fit so well into the heart of the Lord Jesus that he immediately goes with him. Maybe he said something. We're not told he could have said something back to to Jairus, but the idea is the same. This This is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and to save sinners. I was thinking today about something about VG Donuts, and you go buy donuts there, and it's like, you know, it's in the name. It's a donut shop. That's what you go buy there. What does Jesus' name mean? Yeshua, salvation. You go to donut shops to get donuts. You go to Jesus to get salvation. This is the very reason that he's here. And he immediately, at least in this passage, wordlessly goes with Jairus. He doesn't qualify. He doesn't say, well, if you have enough faith and if she doesn't die yet. He goes confident of his own ability that he's able and, of course, he's willing So even in this first scene, this desperate request, we see that Jesus is able and willing to save all of those who come to him, no exceptions. But this is all public. There's there's people all around listening to this. This is a great crowd following, thronging about him, bumping into each other, jostling. This is like some kind of like mosh pit, everybody around, smashing into each other. And everybody wants to go see a miracle. Everybody wants to go and see a sign. This is probably what would happen today if somebody went around and started casting out demons and healing people. So a great crowds following him and thronged about him. Which brings us to our second scene, an unexpected interruption. An unexpected interruption. Who are we expecting to meet next? Probably this little girl or 
Maybe her, her mother, we go into the house and you know, she, the mother's crying at, at her daughter's bedside. But instead, we're introduced to someone else. Verse 25, an unexpected interruption. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. We're introduced to this woman. And the first thing we're told about her is that she's had a discharge of blood. She's not given a name like Jairus. And this discharge of blood some type of hemorrhaging. She would have felt weak and in pain constantly. And to solve this, she had spent all that she had on different doctors. Some of you might be able to identify with this. Go to a lot of different doctors, and you're not made better, but you're made worse. It still happens today, but it happened even more often in this time period. If you want to ruin your afternoon, you can Google uh, Second Temple Judaism hemorrhaging woman treatments and you, yeah, I would just suggest not doing that, but <laughs> if you want to ruin your lunch, then you can. So anyways, if you, you read these things and, and, and they obviously make things worse. This is not going to work. But she spent all that she had and instead of growing better, she's grown worse. And that's on the physical side. But even more importantly, to the recipients of this gospel, they would be thinking in terms of ceremonial law, of the Jewish ceremonial law. In the book of Leviticus, if a woman has bleeding, she is unclean. It's not necessarily a sin because obviously she was not in control of that, but it was to remind, God gave these, this system of clean versus unclean to remind the Jewish people that they're sinful. Spurgeon talks about you look up in the sky and you see a bird and you know I'm not supposed to eat that bird. That's the sin bird. I look down on the ground and I can't eat that animal because it doesn't have the right hooves and so that's sin. Just this constant reminder of there's sin and impurity in this world. And so although this was no fault of her own, she's unclean and it was symbolic. She wasn't able to go into the temple and see the sacrifice made for her sins on the Day of Atonement, the blood of the bulls and goats. She wasn't able to go in the synagogue where Jairus constantly was and fellowship with other believers. She, in her mind, would have been completely cut off from God. 
And the Pharisees were not the type to try to bridge that gap, the religious leaders of that day, especially as a woman and then a woman with this kind of problem. And so she could not be more different than Jairus. Jairus is at the top of society. He's the cream of the crop. And this woman, she's, she's the bottom of society, especially in this society. But she heard about Jesus, just like Jairus. And she heard, this teacher is different. He can heal people. He can cast out demons. He can do anything. And so she hatches a plan, and she even says to herself, verse 28, if I just go touch his garments, I'll be well. Even just his garments. Most commentators think that's the tassels, the four tassels that Jewish men would wear in obedience to the ceremonial law. If I just go up and touch that, I can maybe sneak off into the distance, and I'll be healed. And then I can make the right offerings um, in the temple, and then I'll be clean. I can be reinstated into society. Many people think that she had some kind of superstition, that this wasn't really the right way to approach Jesus, and, and she wasn't thinking through things rightly because, you know, if you were, you'd be like Jairus, and you go right up to Jesus and ask for his help. And that might be so, but if that is the case, it, what a great example of even weak faith, what it does when it touches a strong Savior. It's not about the quality of faith, it's not about how, how hard you believe, but it's about the object of your faith. And although I don't think that's the main point of this passage, it's a, I think it's a good, a good example of that here. So she goes up, she follows through with her plan, she touches Jesus, and immediately the flow of her blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately. The blood stops, she feels alive, she's touched the creator. And Jesus, perceiving himself, the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Jesus senses that power from his divine nature has gone out from him and healed someone. Someone has come and touched him with the hand of faith and been healed. But interestingly, when he says, who touched my garments, what do the disciples do? They go, Jesus, this is like, there's people thronging about you. There's people bumping into you. Everybody's rushing to go see this miracle. What are you talking about, Jesus? Like, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. 500 people have touched you. Who touched me? And Jesus just ignores them. He looked around to see who had done it. Jesus is good at ignoring dumb comments. I'm glad for that in my life. <laughs> but when he says, and he looked around to see who had done it, it's literally, he looked around to see what woman had done it. And the idea in the Greek is not looked around like, oh, who touched me? Like, he's looking over and over, searching, who touched me? Who touched me with the hand of faith? who touched me in a significant way to be saved. He's searching for her. And specifically, he says, for the woman who had done it. I, I think that he knows who touched him. But he's not content to just dispense a miracle to her. He wants to encounter her as a person. And this woman, whatever momentary joy she might have had from being healed, 
becomes afraid. Because what is her view of God? Obviously, she had the right view of Jesus. Obviously, she knew he's able and willing. But she was probably influenced by the religious leaders of her time. All she had gotten from them was condemnation. She's cut off from the temple. Even in God's economy at that time, she was, in a sense, cut off from God. And so in fear and trembling, probably because of that, probably because she's not supposed to be out in a crowd, if you're unclean, everybody that you touch, you are making them unclean. So she's making all these other people ceremonially unclean too. She probably shouldn't have been out in a crowd like this, and she knows what what these people are going to think. But this word fear and trembling, if you look at verse 32, it, it is common in the book of Mark and in general in the Bible to signify something specific, a specific type of fear. Remember Peter, he's in the boat and he's afraid. He's like, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus stands up, he calms the storm. And then Peter's not afraid anymore, right? He's like, great, now we're on a calm lake. No, he's more afraid. He's like, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Peter is more afraid after Jesus demonstrates his power than when he thinks his life is in danger. And we see here, it's the same language used, this fear and trembling. This woman has encountered the power of God. And when we encounter the power of God, we feel our sin. Because God is holy. He's righteous, he's just, he's our creator, and as his creatures, we owe him our loyalty and obedience. In fact, the Bible says that we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. The brother of Jesus said that whoever sins in one point has become guilty of all. If we are to approach God on our own, in our own strength, we must have perfectly obeyed God our entire lives. And none of us has done that. No one is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. And although this may have not, not have been her fault, that she had a hemorrhaging problem, she had another problem, a sin problem, just like all of us have, inherited from our father, Adam, and then made worse by us. So she's afraid, and in some ways, rightly so. But she falls down before him and tells him the whole truth. And I love this. How does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond when someone falls down and recognizes him as the object of their faith? And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. We've already seen an example of this passage of what a father's love is like for their daughter, right? You who have daughters, what would you not do for your daughter? Is there anything? And now the only time in the Gospels that Jesus ever calls someone's daughter is this woman. We met Jairus' daughter. Now we meet Jesus' daughter. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The affliction literally means scourge, like a whip. 
But he doesn't just deal with her physical problem here. He says, go in peace, go in shalom, fullness of life. It's eternal salvation. He says, you have come to me. In a sense, the fear and trembling, she falls down, recognizes the holiness of God and puts her trust in this Messiah. And he says, go in peace. Not just physically, but spiritually and be healed of your disease. And many commentators believe, and I, I agree with them, that in this passage, one of the reasons that Jesus wanted to have a public conversation with her is so that he could have a public restoration of her to society. She's not unclean anymore, she's clean. And he is declaring that as God's ultimate representative, as God himself. And so we see, Jesus is able and he's willing to save all those who come to him, no exceptions. He's able and he's willing. He's strong enough, he's mighty enough as the God-man and he's willing, he's loving and gracious because God is love. Which brings us to our third scene, a powerful resolution. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Finally, we see a powerful resolution, a powerful resolution. I'm sure Jairus was happy for this woman that her scourge and affliction was gone, but if I put myself in his shoes, I'm sure I'd be wondering, like, hey, have you forgotten about me? Have you forgotten about my daughter? Like, we're in a rush here. She's at the point of death. She's knocking on death's door, and now you're, like, looking around, who touched me, and it's this unseen healing. I'm sure the disciples had the same frustration, which is part of why they're, they're asking, Lord, there's all these people around. Who touched me? They're like, we got to get a move on. But while Jesus is still speaking these sweet words of, of assurance and, and pardon and healing to his daughter, this hemorrhaging woman, there comes from the ruler's house some servants who say, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? Your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? I'm sure Jairus felt the pressure of, I've got to get there. We need to, we need, this crowd is pressing in on us, slowing us down. And he finally hears these 
fateful words. She's not knocking at death's door anymore. She's dead. But overhearing what they said, Jesus says to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He ignores them. He doesn't even address these people. He says to Jairus, do not fear. Keep believing. Literally in the Greek, keep believing. You you came to me in faith. You came to me trusting. You made this request. Don't be afraid. Keep believing. Keep trusting. You've heard I was able and willing to save. Keep believing that. And personally, I, I hate this phrase that they say, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? It's like the worst. It's the, his whole passage is showing us Jesus is able and willing. He's able and willing to save. And this is a direct assault on both of those things. She's dead. Oh, he could have done it if she was, if she was knocking at death's door, but now that she's dead, don't bother. First of all, they're attacking the power of Jesus, that he's not able to do this. He's not able to raise someone from the dead. And secondly, what else do they attack? His willingness, don't bother. Don't bother him anymore. He's got lots of stuff going on. But Jesus looks at Jairus and in my mind, although this is not explicit in the text, looking into his eyes, don't fear. Keep believing. And in light of this, this unbelief, these servants, he allows no one to follow him. This is going to be a private miracle for those who believe at this point. Jesus does this often. He brings specific people into something that's going to be um, intimate. And we'll, we'll see why at the end of this passage. But he does that. He brings a few with him. Peter, James, and John. And they come up to the synagogue. And again, Jairus, I'm sure his heart sinks. He hears this weeping and wailing, the loud commotion. These probably would have been uh, professional mourners. So what they would do is they would, they wanted to make a big scene culturally. And so they, when someone died, you not only would be mourning in and of yourself, but you would actually hire people to stand out at your house and in your house and mourn with you. So they were professional actors and great at making mourning sounds. <laughs> Wailing loudly. And could you imagine what Jairus would have thought again? But I, I imagine Jesus looking over at him and again, this is not in the text, but the truth is in this text. Locking eyes. Don't be afraid, keep believing. Don't be afraid, only believe. No matter what trials assault your faith, keep believing, keep trusting. And he asks them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They're professionals, they're cynical. They don't care, they see death all the time. They know what a dead little girl looks like. And so they laugh, they don't care. And it's not that Jesus didn't know that she was physically dead, but what he's saying here is this is not something that is going to end her earthly life. She's asleep because she's going to be back up today. He's not uninformed. 
So in the light of this unbelief, he puts them all outside and takes the child's father and mother and Peter, James, and John, just those five who were believing, into the room where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Or in Aramaic, little lamb, little lamb. I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Tenderly, he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Jairus comes to him in faith, and Jesus delivers. He's able and he's willing. And I love this here because only Jesus would think of this. That Jesus not only cares about this, this main need that she has, that she needs to be raised from the dead, but then what does he say right after? Told them to give her something to eat. Only Jesus would know, like, hey, dying, he really takes it out of you. It's just hard. You get hungry after. But you do see the sweetness of the Lord that he cares for these, these smaller needs, not just this seemingly ultimate need. The tenderness of the Lord Jesus that he's able, he's strong. As John was talking about, he's the strongest man that ever lived. Isaiah 50, he set his face like flint and would not be turned back. Nothing would stop him from saving his people. We're told to rejoice for our names are written in heaven and those names Jesus took down and lived a perfect life in our place and died on the cross for our sins. You'll also notice in verse 42 that it says she was 12 years of age. Where have we heard the number 12 before in this passage? the hemorrhaging woman. And these stories, they did happen next to each other, but in God's sovereignty, he allowed this parallel to exist. And it's, it's a point of connection. It's a literary tool to get us to compare these two people, not only because they're right next to each other. And the idea is, as I've been saying, no matter where you are on the social spectrum, no matter where you are, socioeconomically, spiritually, religiously, rich or poor, sick or well, man or woman, Jesus is able and willing to save all those who come to him. No exceptions. If you're rich and religious like Jairus, he participates in the day-to-day -day of the synagogue, he reads the scriptures, I'm sure he knew all about the atonement, he probably had a heart tender towards looking for the Messiah in the way that he approached Jesus. Or this woman, rejected, outcast, on the outskirts of society, alone, not churched. Jesus is able and willing to save all those to come, who come to him, no exceptions. Wherever you are in between is the idea. Here's the, here's the extremes, and you're in there somewhere. Maybe more to one side or the other, but every single one of us has a need. And I, I already spoke of this briefly, but in verse 43, he also charges them something. 
he charges them that no one should know this. Why does Jesus do that? Have you noticed that in your reading of the scriptures? You know, you go through the Bible reading plan and read through the gospels, and Jesus sometimes will say, like in, earlier in Mark 5, he says it's a demoniac. He says, he, he casts out that legion of demons, and then he says, go, and, go home and tell, tell all that God has done for you. But then other times, Jesus says what? Don't tell anyone. Well, most scholars and, and most students of Scripture can see the reason that Jesus keeps some things to a small group of people is because he's managing the expectations of the Jewish people of the time. They're expecting a king who's going to come, who's going to conquer, who's going to rise through war and revolt and politics. That's how they expect the kingdom of God to come. And so Jesus has to manage expectations if he does certain miracles, if he gets, gets to the point where people are so convinced they're going to try to make him a king. Remember, they do that in Jesus' life. They try to actually force him to be king. And ultimately leads in his rejection of that and in his crucifixion. So even this passage, the shadow of the cross is there. The shadow of the cross is all over the ministry of Jesus. That yes, he came to heal sick people. Yes, he came for the outcasts. Yes, he came to raise little girls from the dead. But he came to do something so much more significant. And God in his sovereignty has arranged history and the Bible to demonstrate these truths to us. How will we be received by Jesus if we come to him? But there's a different need. This little girl, she died of no fault of her own. She was a sinner, yes, but she inherited that from Adam. This woman inherited fallen Nature from Adam, yes, but she was hemorrhaging through no fault of her own. Just like Jesus says to the blind man, it was not his parents or him who sinned, but it was that the glory of God might be revealed. Our sickness is not a result necessarily of specific sin in our lives that we can point out. But we all have a sickness that we can take responsibility for. We're all sick with sin. We are in worse straits than either of these situations. Because as I mentioned, God is holy and righteous and just. And he, yes, he is loving and kind, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished. He will by no means clear the wicked. There must be satisfaction for sin. Because these women are sick, again, through no fault of their own and died through no fault of their own. We are the opposite of that. Yes, we inherit Adam's sin, but we earn death. We're all sinners. Our natural instinct is to be turned in on ourselves, to do only what counts for us. Paul says we're haters of God and haters of one another. That's how we all come into this world. But that is the real reason that Jesus came. He came to deal with our ultimate problem, our sin, our defiance of God. And he did that through his death on the cross. And Jesus went to the cross. And what was he doing as he hung there? He was bearing 
the hell that we deserve on the cross. All the punishment that you deserve in hell for all the sins you've committed, one would be enough. But think about all the judgment that you deserve. It's an eternity because it's against an eternal God. Jesus came and bore that for you, Christian. He came and suffered that in your place. So there's no more wrath for you. There's no more punishment. There's no more judgment for you. And he rose again to prove that it was an acceptable sacrifice, that God accepted those terms, that Jesus would take our place. And we, we receive that by faith. If we will recognize, I am sick, I have a need, I'm sick with sin, I deserve God's judgment. I deserve hell for all the things that I've done. But I've heard about Jesus and I've heard that he's able and willing to save all those who come to him. And I'm coming to him. I'm trusting. I'm putting all my confidence no longer in myself or my works, but all of that is transferred to the person of Christ. All my confidence is in him. And if we do that in faith, repentance and faith, turning, changing our mind about our sin and putting our trust and confidence in Jesus Christ, we'll be saved. He who believes has eternal life. So if you're a Christian here today, don't be afraid. Keep believing. Don't be afraid, only believe. The one who is in control of every single detail of this life, he who holds the world together has nail-pierced hands. He died for your sins and rose again. And so every single thing that happens in our lives comes from his loving hand. We see the world through cross glasses, that everything we filter through the cross. We don't ask because of our circumstances, does God love me? Is it going well at home? Is it going well at work? Is it going well in my marriage? We look at the cross. We, we, don't, we don't fear. We keep believing, keep trusting. You came to the Lord Jesus knowing that you need forgiveness. And so keep believing, keep trusting. Rejoice for your name is written in heaven. And even the worst things that happen to you, God has specifically prepared for you to cause you to trust him more. As a child, as a daughter or son, God has given these things to you to say, trust me more. Don't be afraid, keep believing. There, there'll be more glory for you than this, in this. And if you're not a Christian, Jesus is able and willing to save all those who come to him. We must come, we must come to Christ. We must recognize again that it's not that something happened to us, Something did happen to us. You inherited Adam's sin nature from the fall, but in a sense, you spent all your money on doctors and you've only grown worse. You might have tried self-help techniques. You might have tried to discipline your life. You might have tried to help other people, but your sin problem still remains. Come to the Lord Jesus. He's, willing and, he's able and willing to save you. Put your confidence no longer in yourself, but in Jesus Christ who bore the sins of any sinner who would believe on the tree. So whether you're a Christian or not a Christian today, believe, trust in Jesus. 
Put your confidence in him. He's able and willing to save all those who come to him. No exceptions. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can come before you as our Father. That just as that woman, she might have been the only woman called daughter by your son in Scripture. But for all of us, Lord, all of us who have recognized our sin and put our trust in your son, we are all your daughters and sons. We can come before you confidently. We have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You are our Father. We pray that you would help us to internalize these truths from your word, that we would look to your son constantly because it's as we see his glory that we're transformed from one level of glory to the next. Set our eyes on Jesus. Help us to not set our minds on the things that are below, but on the things that are above. Again, that we can rejoice that our name is written in heaven, that as we bring our lives before you and our struggles and worries, that We can have a peace that surpasses all understanding knowing that our ultimate problem is dealt with and all these other things come from your hand as a father. And we're most convinced of that, that you are our father because you did not spare your own son for us, but graciously delivered him up for us all. How will you not then freely give us all things? You've shown that you love us. So please forgive our doubt, Lord. Please forgive our hesitancy to put to death our sin. Please forgive our selfishness. Please forgive our impurities. Please forgive our greed. We thank you for the cross and for the resurrection of your son. And it's based only upon his merits and in his name, the name that means salvation, that we confidently ask these things from you. Amen.